This week on the Sports Initiative podcast, I sit down with Coventry City lead foundation phase coach, Joel Moody. He discusses individualisation for players going through the development pathway, his coaching journey and the foundations he has laid along the way, as well as the common threads he sees with some of the best young athletes that he's worked with. I hope you enjoy. Joel, thanks for jumping on. How are things? Uh, do you know what? Yeah, really good. I think um, be, being in, in football, you've been fortunate enough that you've been able to carry on. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely been a bright part so far. Yeah. Obviously, everyone's presented different challenges. For those people that don't don't know you, what um, what's your current ro- role? Where do you work? Uh, so... My current role is I'm the foundation phase lead at Coventry City Football Club. Um, so basically my role, I look after everything from pre-academy to under 12. Uh, but specifically, um, I'm at the sole lead of the 11s and 12s. Um, and I've been here for three seasons now. And I did a stint of a season before I moved to Canada. So it's my fourth season at the club. Um, so yeah, I've been there a while now. I, I guess uh, during this time, obviously, with um, differences of people being able to play and not being able to play, what's your programme look look like over at Coventry? Uh, as in during the lockdown, or do you mean like just in general? Yeah, uh, during the lockdown and then we'll go on to in general after. Yeah, so ju- during, during the lockdown, um, so obviously we went through a stage where everything um, was like contact free and it was a lot of unopposed work. And you had to kind of get through that before you could go back into your actual, you know, the, the, the solid work you do. Um, reason being, if we went back into a lockdown, you were able to carry on training and go back to that level, possibly. It never actually happened, but um, so we did like three weeks of like unopposed work, um, which was new in academy football to me because normally, you know, I like to go into opposed work in more context, but. We did a lot of technical work and I definitely think it's had, it had its benefit and it actually timed quite well because it happened at the pre-season stage. So, so it almost felt like a really good um, blend to get back into it, you know, after a bit of a break, they had six months off and then they came, came in with us. If we'd gotten straight into high intense opposed work, maybe a few would have broke down or not, not found the intensity quick enough. Um, so it was like a nice little warm-up. So I, I did enjoy that part. I think next year, when we go back into pre-season, uh, it might be something that we do consider, you know, doing a lot of unopposed work uh, after the big break. And you mentioned kind of seeing some benefits. What were they? What did you see that were positive outcomes from it? Um, I, I say positive. Sometimes you, you stress the boys technically. So the boys which, you know, rely physically um, the big, strong, dominant boys. They weren't able to, to rely on that. And we, we do something called gold, silver, bronze um, after every session. And we base that on our values. So, for example, our academy values are respect, development and resilience. 
So, for example, um, at the end of the session, the coaches will pick someone who got gold, silver, bronze based on any of those three values. Uh, and because it was unopposed, the boys were working differently. Um, the coaches couldn't pick on the player who scored the most goals or the player who was strongest in possession, you know, and kept getting on the ball. It was more about technique and development based. Um, so, yeah, we really stressed the boys technically. Did you see anything that surprised you with certain players as to how they could cope with that or how they flourished in that environment? Um, yeah, do you know what? Yeah, we did actually. So it, it was good for the boys, which which were technically strong in our in our program, which maybe were late developers because all of a sudden they 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 were getting success. Um, and it was pure technique based, but look, let's let's not forget they do need all the other bits, the context, the the opposed work. They need that, um, and I'm I'm all for that. I think context and opposition, even if it's semi opposed, I think it's it's paramount to development. Um, but yeah, if, for the for the boys which which can't rely on it, um, yeah, it was fantastic. And in terms of for you guys now, are you able to keep playing, training and whatnot? Yeah, do you know what? We've um our academy management team, so the academy manager and they've been they've been spot on with all the protocols, the medical team, all the protocols. Um we're operating really highly to make sure that our boys can continue playing and training. Um our boys isolate, so you know if the school goes out, they isolate for two weeks. We, we sanitise everything during sessions. We do the goals, we do the cones, we do the footballs, we do the hand gel before, after. The boys don't swap bibs. So the boys make sure they've got their own two bibs. Um, also, they, they don't shake hands. It's just so, so many protocols. And like at first, I'll admit, <clears throat> it was quite a lot. Um, you know, as staff, you're trying to plan a session. You're trying to build relationships with players. You're trying to communicate with other staff, your multidisciplinary team. And then you've got all these new rules and protocols that you've never had to deal with in like, so I've been coaching since I was 16. And all of a sudden you get, you get this book thrown at you that right players can't shake hands. They can't jump on each other. They can't celebrate, uh, wash hands before and after. They can't swap bibs. Because in your head, you're like, right, I'll do a little rondo. Defender, right, swap your bib, give it to someone new. We couldn't do that anymore. So all of a sudden, not only are you trying to develop players and, and teach techniques, the other half of your brain is kind of watching, right, what can't they do? You can't do that, you can't do this. Oh, and you say to maybe the assistant coach, can you make sure that when they go over there, they space all their drinks up? Like, just so, so many little things that um, add. It's going to be nice, you know, when you go back to normality, maybe in a year's time, having to deal with pure football again, it would be nice. Yeah, I think it will, be, it will be a nice change for everyone. And I definitely think that um, when we do get to a stage where we can just go back and put on a session and everyone can enjoy each other's company, that, that'll be a nice day. I guess the biggest, yeah, the biggest thing for me is, you know, when players score a goal or like they do something well and they, they all go to hug and celebrate and they're not really, they're not allowed to do it. And it, it'd just be nice to allow that to happen again. Do you think that's important for the kids? I think it's really important. I know when I've played teams in the past, they've made a big point that if, if a player scores, the whole team has to go and celebrate together, you know, to kind of get that unity. 
and probably your club and academy values. At the minute, you don't see that. You can see the goal or you score a goal and it's just like, well done. Maybe he gets a thumbs up and then back they go. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it'd be nice to get that back in there. Yeah, I think it'd be, it'd be nice for the kids in terms of, you know, it's that little bit of a buzz of a goal score, isn't it? But, you know, that's part of the reason why they enjoy everyone cheering for them and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, especially, especially in the foundation phase. Um, so, obviously, you've mentioned that you, you work for Coventry and kind of the standards you're going through there kind of align, I guess, with the heritage of the club itself. It's, it's you know, it's, it's a big club that has a, a really um, positive history in terms of English football. How big a draw was that for you in terms of helping them, I guess, get back to where you guys want to be and also be able to carry on that, that heritage? Uh, so when I, when I first came to the club, my twin brother was already at the club, so it helped that I, I knew what was going on there, um, what the staff was like in, in the culture. And I remember we played them when I, was, when I was coaching at Southampton. We went up there for a friendly and as soon as you walk through the door... Um, and look, Coventry City will know that they haven't got a, a £10 million multi, I mean, it's a state-of-the-art facility. But as soon as you walk in that building and around the facility, you just, you can smell football. You, you can smell it, the culture. Uh, we develop footballers, and we always have, and I think we always will. Uh, it helps where we are, where we're based. Um, we're based in a big city. We've got a lot of diversity in this city um, and we've got a lot of diversity in terms of our players as well. Um, so so that helps and it helps that we, we've got good staff. Yeah. So obviously you mentioned their culture and one of the big things in sport a lot is talking around culture and stuff. What type of culture do you try and breed in the environment, both, I guess, for staff and for players themselves? Uh, so, so something with our culture is... I know the, val the values are important and they're integral to everything we do. And I know it seems like um, some places it might seem like a bit of a tick box, you know, for audits, uh, what, what are your values? Like we, we actually do live by our values. Um, and there's only three of them. So like, you know, sometimes when you get, you get too many values, it seems like, oh, what's, what's the 10th one? What's the 15th one? But, um, but we've got three values. And we, we try and stick with them with everything we do. So, for example, like, uh, I'll give you an example. On the weekend, we had a fixture um, versus a, a strong cat one. And we've got an under-11 who's doing really well. The easy part for us would be to play him in the under-11s and maybe get a draw or get a win. Because if he plays, look, we, we probably draw or we win. But one of our values is development. So he's got to, he's got to play up with the trials in this game because he's doing so well and it's a reward for him um, and, and the great thing about I say about our culture at the club is you've got an academy manager and a head of coaching which back you and they know that they see that more than anyone so it's not like you're under pressure to kind of get a win or like ah oh, why why are the 11s losing like it doesn't happen at the club because we know that one of our values is development and we're stretching the boys I guess you see real positive effects for the lads when they are able to play across age groups, etc. Yeah, yeah, we, we we do it well, to be honest. Um, it's about managing that as well. I think we, we manage it really well. I'll give, I'll give an example. We had an under nine and we mentioned about him playing up and he got really nervous. And we thought, you know what, keep him where he is now. 
and you know we'll, we'll do it properly and we'll, we'll do it the right way so when when he had his review we spoke to the mum and dad about look he's doing really well a reward it's going to play up so we kind of drip fed it in and then about three weeks ago i made a joke when i was walking off to the under 11 pit Are you come in and uh he looked over he's like yeah yeah okay and he came to come over as a joke i don't know who you are but we'll get you up soon so we, we kind of tested what, what his reaction would be. And then we played him up last weekend and he absolutely loved it and did really well. Uh, so we, we did it the right way. Um, and he, he's got a growth mindset with it now. Um, so it's important, I think, you know, when you play boys up and down, that you explain why. Because sometimes, you know, when boys play down, especially, they can feel like it's a punishment, but actually you've, you've got to explain why you're doing it. Um, and then I, I think making sure that they get that variety and picking the correct games as well. Because some games you come up against really tough opposition where actually playing them up is going to be really difficult for them. Um, so, yeah, it, it's about, you know, pre-planning their journey and what, what their diet needs. I think it's interesting the terminology you've used there as well in terms of saying it's a reward. Um, so yeah. rather than just saying, oh, you're playing up today you're notifying from as you're going back to your club values that they've exhibited you know the values that you want and the practice culture that you want and the you know the performances in game that you'd like to see and then to help their development at this moment in time the reward is you're going to go and you know have an opportunity to stretch yourself kind of at a older age group I, I think you know with that it's something that runs through through our club um, I know James Madison was playing first team football when he was a scholar. So look, they, they need to be able to, if, if you're going to be a good one, you need to be able to deal with challenge and have that growth mindset. And sometimes we might play them up and they actually, they might find it really difficult. Um, and other times they might go up and they might be uh, our best player playing a year up, which is brilliant, by the way. Um, so yeah, it is, it is a reward and playing down is not, not a punishment or a consequence. Yeah, I, I think the, the playing down across the younger age group, etc., is a real interesting one because you have to really explain it to the kids. But I, I do find that once you've explained it to them once or twice, and you can maybe, you know, give them the onus of, well, you can go in and be a leader of that group, or you could go in and really help the others, that you can see a bit of a mindset shift. I don't know if you've had experience in that. Yeah, do you, do you know what? You can actually, I've had, I've had this come back a few times, you can actually put more pressure on players, you know, by playing them down. Because they, if they play down, they're expected in their heads to be the best player and to get a lot of success. So, for example, you know, if you play your own age group, some of them are happy they can be middle of the pack. But when you play them down, Sometimes you're not making the game easier for them. Actually, you're making it harder because you're saying, look, you've got to go and be the best player. Not that you'd ever put that pressure on a player or anyone, or especially a child, but it's a feedback I've had back from some parents that that's how they feel. Yeah, it's a good consideration to have in terms of how you frame it. And actually, yeah. the common phrase I used to for the kids I work with is, whatever game you're playing, it's just a bunch of white lines and two goals at the end. And... Um, you know what? We, we played a top, 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 top four club 
last Saturday. I went and watched the under-15s. And because of the badge, which was on the opposition shirt, and how nice the floodlights were, and how nice the grass was, it changed everything. So, yeah, it, honestly, you're right, mate. Still, still a football match, and there's still 15-year-old boys. You're still wearing the same pair of football boots, but psychology is massive. Yeah, I think it's something that will come increasingly invaluable in in society as well as football setups, trying to support players and support people with, with that side of the game. Okay, so um, obviously you alluded to earlier on in the interview, you've kind of had quite a broad range of experiences moving from different clubs and stuff. Do you just kind of want to talk through your journey as to how it started off as a 16-year-old and then kind of, obviously, we've alluded to you being in commentary there um, and then yeah. pick up as and when? Yeah, so before I start talking about um, working for football clubs and academies, I think something that's really important, and I, I know you would have done it, and I know a lot of good academy coaches in the country would have done it, and I think people don't value it enough and they don't do enough of it these days. I think some, some coaches want to skip out the most important part for me, which is, you know what, doing community football, working for a grassroots club, um, <laughs> doing birthday parties, doing holiday camps. Because all, all those different um, scenarios, you know, all that different coaching, that, that builds you up and you, you get your foundation and your layers and it's like um, it's like a footballer going straight into academy football without playing any grassroots football. I think for me, I think you need you need to get that. You need to. So I, I did a lot of working in communities and, and summer camps in America. When I was eighteen, I went to to New York. Uh, I coached out there for four months in the summer, and you just learn little things, and you make a lot of mistakes about you know how to manage children's behaviour how to excite them because some, you get kids out there. So I, I remember this one. I'll always remember this. You've got these kids on these summer camps, which have been dumped there by the mums and dads because it's cheaper than babysitting in childcare. So you've, all of a sudden you've got, you've got maybe 15 kids in your group, which don't want to be there. And you've got to engage them and get their buy-in to something that they don't want to do. So I remember spending five days a week having to try and, you know, influence these kids to, to play football. So all of a sudden now, you know, when you do academy football, like if you can do that, you can influence academy players to do anything. Um, so I did a lot of that. And then I moved to Newcastle to go to university. And when I was there, I started working for Newcastle in the community, the foundation. And a lot of the staff that I was working with actually were academy coaches as well. So they're doing it half and half. And some of them now, they're working in the professional game at Newcastle. Um, so I was really fortunate to be like rubbing shoulders for the first time in my life with people which were in academy football. What did you, study, like, what did you study at uni? So I studied sports um, coaching science. Was that, did you find that useful having an environment in which you could actually use the theoretical models you were learning? Do you know what? I, for, for me, it just gave you, it gives you a background, you know, like you've got like a base layer. But the biggest thing for me was the connections I, I had that I met because I never would have met them where I lived. I lived in a small town 
outside of Bath. And there's no there's no professional football club really, is there? I mean obviously Southampton have a centre there, but I didn't I wasn't involved with that. So it was difficult. So all of a sudden you're in a big city where big football clubs do exist. Um and you're able to the biggest thing for me, you know, when you, you do a degree, you're showing independence that you can go for three years and you can stick with something for three years and you can study by yourself and you know, stick, stick to task. So that's, that's what you do. You learn. It's not so much about, you know, you, you learn the physiology of the skeletal structure. Like, yeah, you, you might know it, but that's not going to help you in your journey of being an academy coach. What's going to help you in your journey is that you know how to shut your way, yourself away for three hours and study. Do you think that's something that has stayed with you throughout your coaching career? Yeah, I think I think people generally now in academy football, a lot a lot of the time you're either an ex-player or you're an academic, and I think there's value in both. Um, if you're if you're going to be academic, I think you've you've got to continue, you know, um, educating yourself on on new trends in different books. For example, like we've all read the same books, Legacy you know, bounce, we've all read the same books, but you, you can't become stale. And at the same time, you do need to consol consolidate that learning. And so we'll, we'll go back to this now. How was it working for um, Newcastle? Because, uh, you know, everything you hear and you read about that club, it's like, like it's a big bubble and, you know, everyone there is football crazy and all that type of stuff. Did you get any sniff uh, of that whilst you were there, even if it was community stuff? Yeah, do you know what? You, I remember some days you'd be walking. So this is my student life, not not part of the actual club. You you walk into a like into town, and there'd be bars open like eleven a.m. Absolutely rammed with Newcastle fans, and then they'd walk up to the game for like the twelve o'clock kickoff um, because the stadium's right right by the town centre, and you, you just honestly. Have you ever seen the movie Goal? I haven't. I've only seen snippets of it. But <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, do you know what? It, you watch the movie and you're like, oh, Newcastle fans love, love Newcastle. But then actually, like when you go up, you don't understand how much they love their football. So, you know, to be part of that, you, you felt proud and really privileged when you're there because you're part of something that everyone loves and everyone adores. So you go to Birmingham and... You don't know who people support. Some support Villa, some support Birmingham, some support Coventry, some support West Brom, some support Wolves. But you go to Newcastle, apart from obviously Sunderland, there's only one club. So you know, like, <laughs> you're in the thick of it. So how different was that for you? So obviously you've mentioned those, like, Camp America-type experiences where you all happen to almost motivate the kids to take part in football and in sport. So then I imagine going and working in a community environment where if the kids are going to that and it's got Newcastle branding, they're probably kings mustard to be there and are really excited at the fact that you know, they're playing with coaches of the black and white and all that type of stuff. Yeah, do you, know, do you know what? I had such a variety when I was there. So some days I worked um, in a gym, in like a little like soccer camp there you know like one hour a week while the parents worked out 
and you looked after their, <laughs> you looked after their, their, their sons and their daughters and so forth during coaching. Um, but that, do you know, I, I think that was as integral to my journey as other days where I'd work with the 15s and I'd support them and shadow the 15s. And I, I feel like they were both equally important because when I was working in the, the little holiday camp, the coach with me would talk to me about, you know, projecting my voice and not being very monotone. And I always remember, and he, he called me out on it. And since then, I've, I've learned how to project my voice and, you know, like change my tone depending on what I want. Um, so what that was important. Say? What did he do? He said, Joel, you, you just, it's boring. You just, you're just talking to them normally. And then he, he was really, he was really like, he, he was renowned in the, in the community for being, you know, like not a birthday coach, but if, the, if you needed someone to go and excite the players, he was the guy. So he was really good to learn off about how to celebrate, you know, when things were good and just be a little bit wacky. So it was good to have that with me. I guess that's a skill you can take on with the kids now, because although academy football at times can be serious, you need to have that element of fun, as you've alluded to earlier. Yeah, to, certainly, 100%. So obviously, you mentioned there you, um, you, know, you went up to uni, learned from those community coaches. What, what happened off the back of that? So when I was there, so I, I'll always remember this. I was living with a few, call them like, you know, proper lads. And we went in and I, I'll admit it, when I was doing my B-Tech, so I was, when I was at college, um, I didn't put as much effort in as I should have. But then obviously I had a gap year and I went there. And I, I remember going in with all the boys and they went and sat at the back of the classroom and they had their phones out. And I remember making a conscious effort to go and sit at the front because I wanted to learn and I wanted to study. I was like, look, I've done my messing around. I've got, a, you know, I've really got to nail down now. And the tutor, how it turned out. So after a few months of working hard, trying to go above and beyond, the tutor was best friends with one of the Newcastle, like, league coaches. I think he's now, I think he's now the 18s coach, actually. And he put me in touch and basically they had a chance to, to get a student some work over at Newcastle. And because I'd, I'd worked hard and I kind of singled myself out, that was my reward. So what did you learn during that time? In terms of, uh, what do you mean? So when you went into that Newcastle Academy environment, you had that reward. What what hit you? And um, what did you learn whilst you were there? Do you know, do you know what? The, the thing that hit me was how humble, how humble the staff were. Um, because they, they were top, top, top staff. And they're still doing really well now. And I remember one Saturday, I turned up to a game just to go and watch. I got, I got the, the metro there, like the little tube. And I walked there. It was like a cold Saturday. I got there, went and stood on the corner of the pitch. And it's about 10 minutes before kickoff and the coach made a deliberate like way, came out his way, come talk to me, talk about the team, who's playing where, what he thought about the opposition. And then he went, obviously he went back to the dugout and I thought, do you know what? He didn't have to do that. He could have easily just sat in his dugout, spoke to the staff, but he made a deliberate way to come talk to me. Um, so I'll always remember that. You're never, you're never too big. Little interactions are important, I guess. And 
you can that's with staff and players in the role that you're in at the moment yeah yeah it is um there's a lot of good people in football a lot of good people in football and i think it's important that you, you know you, you appreciate that and you value them so, so you would have done your three years, kind of end of your degree and whatnot. I imagine you're 21, 22 years of age at the time. What were your next step after that? Do you know what? Um, my twin brother's work was working at Swansea, and I think so. I, I finished my last my last year at university. I did at um, I did at University of South Wales, Glamorgan, because I was able to get my B license there too. And whilst working there, me and my brother worked for Swansea Development and we needed, obviously, we finished uni and we were desperate for full-time work. And we we, looked, we we panicked and took a job in America, which I don't think we probably should have. It wasn't what what, what we hoped it to be. Um, but fortunately, look, because we set quite a good impression, a full-time job came up at Swansea, two, two full-time jobs in the community. And I flew back for the interview and we both got the jobs um, thrown in at the deep end a bit. But we had to kind of manage like a whole region of Wales. And he, he had Carmarthen, I had Pembrokeshire. We had to go around schools, coaching in schools. Um, and also we, we had opportunities to coach in the pre-academy. And then from there, we, we, we were coaching pre-academies. We, we were coaching uh, the under nines, tens. Um, and I had the under-12s for a whole year. So I think I ended up at Swansea for about four years, you know. So I was, I was lucky with the opportunity that I had. And how did you find the differences between, I guess, South Wales to then the North East? I imagine, you know, it's vastly different in terms of what the characteristics of the two places are like. Is there any similarities or are there any differences that you notice in particular? You know what? There's a few similarities. Um, very honest, hardworking people, um, both in both places in, in, in Wales. I actually really loved West Wales. It's really far up the way. There, there was no city, big city in West Wales. I think that the big city is Cardiff, and then you're about two hours from there. It's very honest, um, a very community-based people. Uh, and Swansea, Swansea was a really good club as well. Like, like I said, there was a lot of people there which had been there for a long time. People who who played there, then they became coaches. Um, coaches would coach there for a long time. And Swansea went through a really rapid growth of all these boys going in the first team and getting sold to people like Liverpool uh, and Tottenham. And then they went from like Cat 3 to Cat 1. In no time, we built, we built these incredible facilities, and they almost—they they really had to catch up quick. So you had all these people which were used to working in, you know, with low budgets, and all of a sudden they had better facilities. Uh, so again, like you had all these grounded, humble staff. It, it, it was great to be involved in that. So I guess initially, who were the coaches that had gone from playing? Um, into then coaching and whatnot and what type of values and uh, teachings did you learn from them during your time there? So we had this one, um, I'll always remember, you know, the first, so you, you all have your, your role models and different role models at different points in your life. Uh, 
we we had a guy called Roy, and he was in his sixties, I think. If you listen to this, don't quote me. <laughs> but, um, he, he he has been there and done it all with football. When he was like in his twenties, I think he went to Africa and he played in in Kenya. And he was like the only, yeah, like the only white person playing football out there. <laughs> There's a really brilliant team photo of him in the like in the lineup, and he he was just such an open open guy. He travelled all around the world. He coached in Australia. He coached in America. Uh, he he'd been there, done it all, and all of a sudden this guy is doing the under nines with me and my brother. And you think, Do you know what? If if you've done all this and you're the under nine coach. You could honestly, you couldn't have picked a better person to be with, to you know, to kind of learn how to coach academy football. And he was actually one of my tutors on my B license as well. So what what learns do you have? Because I imagine with that amount of experience, it must have been you know you you could learn something new every day. He he'd been there, done it all. He coached a first team in in the in where was it in the Far East. He, you know, like maybe Dubai or somewhere, I forgot, but he'd been there and done it all. And he loved working with the little ones. He was able to turn it on and off. You know, like the, what I said earlier about, you know, being silly and having a laugh with the kids. He had that in his locker. I remember every Saturday morning at the end of the session, we do a penalty shootout. And it sounds ridiculous. The boys absolutely loved it. And if you won, if you were the winner, the last man standing, you get like a little toy car. You hear this little toy car? It sounds ridiculous now you talk about it. The winner got the toy car and they got to take the toy car home with them for a week. And they had to bring it back next Saturday. But the way that Roy would make such a big deal of it and he'd hold it up. And, and to the boys, it was like the World Cup. It was like the biggest trophy you could get in world football. Just the way that he, he kind of presented himself around this silly little toy car. That's probably worth about two pounds. I won't be surprised if you found it on the street. <laughs> but um, yeah, so for me, look, that, that was huge. You had this guy been there, done it all. And he was able to, to relate and coach, you know, nine-year-olds. The best, you know, I had, I had a coach at um, Coventry City, the head of coaching last year. Again, he used to be the Wolves under 23 coach. And he was as good with the nine-year-olds as he was with the 23s. And I think that's a skill. What do you, what do you think that skill is? And how do you think you develop it? Mm. I think you need to be able to step back and be, and be, you know, real. What is it they need? What is it they want? Because it's very different, do you know what I mean? What a nine-year-old needs and what a nine-year-old wants compared to what a, an under-18 needs. Um... It probably helps, you know, both of them have got grandchildren and they've got kids so that they, they, they know as well. And is that something in your role you've got better with? Because I imagine, you know, when you're coming up coaching all the time, you're probably very hands-on, you're worrying about, you know, individual planning, worrying about the flow of the session and whatnot, whereas being able to be foundation, lead, etc., there's going to be an element of being needing to be able to see the bigger picture. Yeah, do you know what? Mine's probably the opposite, where it's not, you know, working from top to bottom, working bottom to top. So I'm really good for the young ones. It's about, you know, if 
and working at older age groups you know how how you relate with a 15 year old compared to working with an 11 year old because it is different so i i make a really valid point that if we have a game and i've got a, a day off i'll go so i'll go with the 18s to to crew or i'll go with the 15s to to play man city because i want to be around it and i want to i want to see what's it got to look like at 15 what's it got to look like at 12 how do coaches talk so i like to be around it all um i don't see you know working with 15s as a promotion to working with 13s i think to some people they see it like that i don't see it like that but i see the importance of being able to do both I guess it's similar to, I think, the German model that allow coaches, they basically employ a load of coaches and then filter them into the system wherever it's deemed most necessary or their skill set fits best for that year. Um, I think that's what they do abroad really well. You know, a lot of foreign players, once they finish playing, they go and they work at like academy level back in their countries. So, for example, like, I know, is it Ruth Venisoroy? I think he's working now at an academy level in Holland. And he's probably working his way up. And I think, you know what, I think that's the way way to do it, personally. You, you get to see where they've been, what's their journey, and where they're ending up. And I guess for you, obviously, being able to see all those different um, regions of the club or age groups and stuff, you get an idea of what a pathway looks like players or potential pitfalls or potential areas that they can excel and stuff how how do you go about planning uh, a player's route kind of through your academy be it at Swansea or, or, or Southampton or Coventry or whoever that's with do you know what? It, it's nice to be at a club for an extended period of time where you can see them grow and you can see you can see a player's actual journey I think one of my pitfalls is I've been at quite a lot of clubs and you end up, you know, being there for two seasons and then you go somewhere new, you know, to, to experience a different part of the world, but you don't actually get to see a journey. I've been at Swansea now for quite a long, sorry, Coventry, for quite a long time. There you go. See, I've been at too many clubs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've, so there's boys now that I saw when they were under 13s and they're now doing really well in under 18 football. And there's also boys which I, I saw who found it really difficult when they're younger and now they're doing really well. Um, so I think it's, you know, really important that every player's journey is different and we don't we don't put them all in the same bracket. That's the biggest thing that I've I've seen in that at any academy I've been I've been in, not not one player has the same journey. Is there any common threads between the ones that have gone on to have success that you've seen? Yeah, do you know what? The one thing that... So there was a boy at Swansea that I had as under nine who's ripping it up. I think he's playing like four years up or something at Swansea now. There's a boy at Vancouver who's doing really well. There's a boy... And the boys at Coventry, which are doing incredibly well. The one thing that I see through all of those boys, the one common de denominator is how ultra-competitive they are. And they hate losing. They absolutely hate losing. So, and I remember having to deal with all of them, having to deal with them, you know, like if, if they lost, having to pick them back up. But they all hated losing. So that's that's one thing that I've, I've definitely noticed.
did that change your did that change your opinion as a coach? Because sometimes we, you know, we, we say we want to work on the development, which obviously we do because it's a long journey and stuff. But having that as a background and going, actually, the ones that have done very, very well have been very competitive, almost works against that. Yeah, look, there's cons to it because sometimes, like, your sessions blow up where, you know, they lose and they go around and start kicking people and you've got to manage that. Um, and it helps the boys around them as well because all of a sudden your group go, turns into a competitive group. How would I perceive, would, would it change my expectations of development versus winning? Um, no, I think, I think that we've almost gone full circle in academy football where it went, it's not about winning, it's about, you know, development. And now I think people are starting to realise it is about development. But let's not forget, we still want to win and you want to not lose. I hear that a lot from a lot of people. And I think it's important. You, you, no one goes out there to lose a game or draw a game. You do go out there to win. And it's the same when you do anything, be it ball mastery, go on, who can get who can get 30 quickest. You want a winner. You want a winner. Uh, and then when you do a possession practice, who can go from north to south, um, first to 10. It's all about, we. everything we do is based on winning. But that's why boys are in academy football because they're perceived as, I say elite, they're perceived as elite. They're winners. So I bet you at school that they're competitive with everything to do at school as well. I guess, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I sometimes wonder whether that's challenges maybe you have at school because I think they'd be competitive in areas that interest them. So I think they'd want to be the best if they really enjoyed maths. They'd want to be the best in maths. I guess the, the challenge is sometimes, same with every kid in the entire planet, there's certain areas of schooling that don't interest them and they don't like. And then all of a sudden you see this hyper competitive kid who wants to win everything in one facet of school. So then not in the other. And then I think that's where sometimes disparity for teachers comes they're like well it looks like he's making no effort whatsoever I don't know what your thoughts are on that yeah do you know what I, I haven't spent enough time in schools for a long time um, but yeah you, you're right because if you enjoy something you, you do it more don't you for example like we enjoy football coaching and we, we enjoy football and that's why we're so passionate about that that's why you do extras if I was a bank manager I'm not sure I'd be going in on my time off. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's, you know, the enjoyment of what you're do, doing is, is very important. Um, in terms of like technical and tactical stuff, those players that you're mentioning, have they had any common threads in that or are they very different in their style of play? Um, some were, were quite raw when we got them when they were young, but they showed that they were, one, they were competitive and two, that they were, they had good fundamental movement skills, so they were good movers. So you know, actually, they're probably going to catch the work, and they did. And then you add that with you know technique, and I'll, I'll be honest, tactically they weren't all great, but I think you know when they get to older age groups, they, they probably could have learned that a bit better. But at young ages, they were stressed technically. They were good at staying on the ball, at twisting and turning. They all have an X factor, which I think. You know, it's really important if you're going to be an academy footballer. What's your X factor? Yeah, I think that's something. 
over recent years, I've seen a real push with in terms of people's IDPs and stuff. China, the word super strength is banded around so much at the moment, which I think is brilliant. It does, it does, yeah. You know what I think? I think when I first came into academy football, a lot, and I'm not, I'm not talking, you know, for one club in general, I'm just talking, you hear a lot on working on weaknesses. Well, actually, I think now we do the opposite and we work on strengths. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think there's been a real shift, just an industry one. Like a few years ago, uh, granted they're different players, but you look at Aaron Lennon, the knock on Aaron Lennon was always his end product wasn't great or there was real, that was quite poor. You look at someone like Adama Traore, who granted is a lot more physically capable in terms of being able to bounce off players, but he has the same issues at points. But the narrative is very different in terms of Adama Traore. Everyone says, look at what he gives you. He can get you up the pitch. He can beat players. He excites the fans. So you've got players, two players there that could go past people. Very exciting. The narrative seems to have changed slightly in terms of focusing on what they can do rather than so much what they can't. You know what? That's a really good point. It's a really good point. I mean, look, there's still, there's still people who, who will look at what they can't do. And let's not forget, like, you do need to help, you know, if they've got, I say weaknesses, things that they need to get better at, you do need to help it. You can't neglect it. But you're right, what's going what's gonna to get you a youth in the youth phase? What's going to get you a scholar? What's going to get you in the 23s? What's going to get you in the first team? You, you know, what being being average at, at best isn't isn't going to make you a professional footballer. Uh, well, Bex was like that, wasn't he? In terms of his crossing, he found that USP that was unbelievable with, and he had, a, obviously, an unbelievable career, David Beckham. So, I, I bet we could name any professional footballer now and you could tell me what their X Factor was. So if I said Zaha, what's his X Factor? Beating players. Exactly. If I said Fernandez, Yeah, we had just good link-up play, good passing. Right. Yeah, exactly. So they've all got you know, Aguero finishing. Like players have X Factors. No, agreed. I think one of the things you said interesting earlier on was about the speed of growth at Swansea. Um, and that, that's something that obviously the nation were able to see. They'd gone from being a club that, you know, were in League One, League Two, etc., to then being in the Prem and doing really well and they showed a real style of football. Um, from you working inside it, how enjoyable was it going through that growth and did it present any challenges for you guys on the ground? Uh, I, it, was, it was really good to be part of. I remember it, we had like um, some sort of partnership in Cape Town and Swansea City flew me out to Cape Town for three weeks to go and, to go and coach out there. So the opportunities that you got out with Swansea at that time were, were were brilliant and superb. Any challenges? Same challenge that, that they have now, really, is the distance. You have to travel like four hours to go and play in London. They're quite, they're quite remote. So being, you know, being remote has got its rewards because you're not really challenging anyone else for, for recruitment, which is what I wish we had now because we, we, we get challenged by West Brom, Leicester, Birmingham, Aston Villa, Wolves, um, Derby so we've got so much comp competition whereas when you're there you know you, you, you can just recruit who 
who you want. But then the flip side to that is, and they still got the same challenge now. If you want to go and play Reading, you've got to go in three and a half hours. So it becomes hard work in terms of that level of travel and I guess commitment to the programme from kids and parents, etc. as well. Yeah, do you know what? I remember we had this one parent, and because he lived on the other side, an hour, hour away on the other side, if they were playing, let's say, for example, we were playing, let me think of a club, let's say Swindon Town or Reading, he'd have to travel, he'd have to get up at six, then tr get ready for half an hour, travel for an hour, get to Swansea at half seven, and then travel from there another three hours, boom. So in, in his day, he was having like an eight-hour travel. He was like basically like flying to Florida. That's how much travel one player would do in a day. And he, he, So yeah, it, it, it is difficult. It was difficult. I think that's interesting. I think that is something that we forget, that there is a lot of travel in, on these stuff. If, unless you're working in the industry, actually realising how much time spent on a bus or in a car to get from A to B to be able to go and play in those fixtures and whatnot. It's, um, it's, a, it's a real challenge. Um, obviously, you mentioned briefly there, you kind of then moved on uh, from Swansea. What was your next step? I then went to Southampton. Um, my mum and dad live in Bath. And Southampton have a satellite academy at Bath Uni. A job came up there. I applied. I was fortunate enough to get that. Um, and I was only at Southampton for a year. But I do really value the people I met there. The, the program and the journey that I was on there. Um, and it, it was, for my first time, it was incredible to be part of such a big academy. Was you knew where to go. It surprised you from coming from your experiences to going into that? I think, I think the, the coach development at Southampton was incredible at the time. I remember going on a coach development like weekend there and like getting put in a hotel and like sitting in like an auditorium you had coaches from all over the country that worked for Southampton, you know, like in the development centres, in the academy. Um, and the whole auditorium was filled. There must have been about 60 staff in there. And it just showed you how big an academy it was. And the experience you can gain from people in the room as well, which I imagine is useful. Yeah, I mean, well, look, we had a head of coaching who wasn't from a football background. And he was, he was purely there to improve you as a person and as a coach and he, he he did you know he did what it said on the tin like he, he really was trying to help you improve and I, I enjoyed working with Ed he, he was really he was really easy to talk to it was nice to have that that person you know in the club yeah I, I to be obviously I know who you talk about Ed Vahid I get on with him quite well and I always think he's very insightful you always come away from conversations with him going he's got a point there or that's something to really go think about I think he's a real thinker and it's when you remember things you know that they said to you like four or five years ago and you still remember them now that ah oh, that must have been pretty good for him to say <laughs> yeah and I think it's interesting what you said earlier regarding that you've got some uh, football people and some ac academic people and stuff. Obviously, Ed played football, was good, has a real interest in football. Um, he has a very strong academic background and in different sports as well. So he's almost able to collaborate lots of different thoughts and thinking from the industry and bring it into 
that environment, yeah. which, is, which is of a real positive. Was there anything in particular from that time that you took with you in terms of how to treat people, how to challenge people or anything like that? Um, I, I think, you know, being a football coach, you've got to be a thief and you've got to steal bits from other people. You know, what, what does he do well? What does he do well? So the he can be manager at Southampton and the, the one at Bath. Um, they, they were brilliant. You know, how they managed people and how they managed them. They, they were excellent how they did that. Uh, and then you, you've had an ex-pro, Lewis, who played 600 league games or more and how humbly he was, you know, and how he was able to switch it on and off with the little ones, with the older ones. And then you had Gary, who, who really, really drove sessions and the intensity um, and had high standards. So you, you just have to be a thief, I think. You know, what can I take from him? What can I take from him? How can I learn that? And then when you go into your next job or your next role, um, you know, try, try and add that to your repertoire. What was your next role when you moved on from Southampton? Where did you go? Um, so I got offered a full-time job at Coventry City in the youth phase. So primarily I was looking after the under-12s and the under-13s. I, I did that for a season. Um, and that was, like I said, you know, at the start, you, you just smell football as soon as you walk in. It, it, and look, what we had, we had to use well. So you learn, like, your time on the grass is so valuable. And everything you do, like, even your little mini conversations on the way to the pitch, everything we did had to be, you know, if we wanted to compete, we had, we had to do it well. We couldn't afford just to rely on good recruitment. So what what was, or what is your USP as commentary? Because as you know, you've got a lot of clubs in your region. So what makes you really stand out? Because I imagine there is something that, you know, people go commentary that and that's why I want to be part of that academy. You know, it seems cliche, but what makes us stand out is you've got staff who, who get it. For example, we've got staff and there's a pathway. So we've got staff working now in our 23s and our first team, which were in the academy. One was a, one was a, a kitman bus driver. He's now a first team coach. Um, and the other one worked in the youth phase for a long, long time. So, like, there's a pathway, and then when you when when you do get up there, do you know what I mean? There's faces that you know, and people who who've been on know the journey that you've been on. We we've got players playing now in the first team, which were in League Two, and they're now playing in the Championship, and they came through our academy. You've got. So, you know, if you come to our, into Coventry City, you, you know what you're getting. You, you, you've got a pathway and you've got, you've got staff that truly value your journey. I don't think the, the um, value of being able to see a pathway can be overstated. I think that, you know, the number of clubs you have up and down the country where if you struggle with that top end, to so actually being able to see that there is a pathway for young children, young players to go on, but also that the coaches and whatnot around it really value your individual journey. I don't think that can be overstated. Mm -hmm. I think I think that's really important. That, like you said, the pathway. I think I, I read a stat that we were nineteenth in Europe for producing 
Premier League footballers, but that was a while ago now. That's that's maybe two years ago, um, but still, not, that's an incredible stat for for Coventry City. Um, so yeah, you know, just believe in what we do, really. And like I said before, good values. It's really important that we've got that. So moving on to, obviously, I know you mentioned then you went to Vancouver for a year. What was it like culture over there? Because I imagine different continent, different um, level of soccer exposure, etc. I'd imagine that would have brought up a whole different variety of challenges and positives for you as well. Yeah, do you know what? Coaching out in Vancouver was great. I mean, some of the players out there are really good. You only need to see the boys playing for Bayern Munich at the minute to know how how good you know some of those players are. There's another boy who so I I went over and I was I was leading the Vancouver Whitecaps Academy on the East Coast. So I hope with anything on the east side of Canada, which is huge by the way, which is huge, we'll come into our academy and then we fly them over to Vancouver and then when they're old enough to join the club. That was the hope. Um and as whilst doing that, I was kind of in charge of a grassroots team, like a club that had f- like 40 teams. So we had boys and girls teams and we had like 800 players. It was honestly, we had so, and I had, I had like 50 coaches to look after. So that was my new challenge. I wasn't just a coach anymore. I was trying to manage a program and manage a staff. Um, so that was, a, that was a really big challenge. And then also with the culture, Something I had to get used to was it's a pay-to-play culture, especially at, you know, grassroots level. So if you want to play, you've got to pay a lot of money. And I found that really difficult, I'll be honest. I found that really difficult. Why? Because for me, I come from a background now where the best players play. You don't need money to play football. And that's why I think football is such a, such a great sport all around the world do you know what I mean it's not like you need tennis courts or you need you just need a football you can play anywhere so out there you, you had boys which or, or, or girls which are really good but the higher up you play the more you have to pay and I, I, that's why I thought the system was a bit flawed so what was their reasoning behind that why, why did it go down that route I, I don't know. It's the, it's the same in America. And I'm sure there's people listening to this now which maybe coach in America or which have coached over there. It's just it's just the way it works out there. I mean, you have to pay for like tournaments and things. If you want to enter a tournament, you've got to pay a lot of money. If you want to enter the league and like pay for the coach and I, I don't quote me on how much it is, but I know it, it does cost a bit of money, you know. Yeah. So say, for example, um, you come from a, a single parent home who's got four kids and they all want to play football. I don't think you've got any chance. Got to pick your favourite, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. who's the best? <laughs> <laughs> who's the best? You can play the rest of you just in the back garden. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting concept and I think that it probably has some benefits in terms of you know, the level of facilities, et cetera, you're able to get. So you've got funding there to be able to use, to be able to put places. But then I, actually there, the bar- that's quite a big barrier potentially for a whole segment of kids to actually be able to get involved in the sport and 
kind of stay active and whatnot. I remember once I went to a, a conference meeting with all the other heads of all the other clubs and we had to talk about game time and we had like the head of the football, you know, in the region come and say, look, your players can only play because they, they work on an LTPD model, long-term player development model, where, you know, as you get older, your game time can increase. So that, for example, like an under 10 can only play one game a week and the games can only be 50 minutes long. Which is, you know, but then what a lot of clubs do because you, you get more money for your squad. So for example, if you play seven aside, you wouldn't just take 10 players because you only get hundred, let's say $200 per player. You end up taking a squad like 14. So all of a sudden, you play a seven aside game, you've got seven subs. So players are only getting 25 minutes of football a week of game time. And I tried to flag it up and be like, look, do you not think that's a problem? Do you not think they should be able to play more games or like longer game time? Like make it an hour, sort of make it two hours. Do you know what I mean? Get them more football. But that, there, there are challenges out there that we don't even think about here. It's not even a flick of the eyelid. Do you know what I mean? Like what? Game time. Like we get extra football here all the time. We see extras for boys to go and, you know, play extra games. We'll take them. Yeah. So how how was it? Go on, sorry. Or for example, like squads. Like when we do squads on the weekend, like we want maybe two or three subs max. Like over there, you've got like six subs, seven subs per game. It's not not something that we do here. So obviously culturally it would have been different in terms of as I said earlier like the exposure of soccer and stuff how was that for you going to a kind of ent entirely new environment and whatnot um, you said the question again sorry mate so like obviously culturally it'd be different between kind of UK and Canada and the exposure to soccer that they have and all that type of stuff or football don't want to get hammered by the UK fan base here um, yeah. but you know it would be completely different so how was that for you kind of jumping from the UK to then going over there to what they deem football to be like and what they're no, do you know do you know what I, I didn't even think about it but do you know who are what my biggest competition was to try and get say we had a really good player and this happened in the winter was to get them to play for us and not ice hockey in Canada, a lot of people saw soccer, football, as a summer sport. And then in the winter, they play ice hockey. Yeah. And then when they got to a certain age, they choose which one they're best at. So, for example, like, they work off two seasons a year. So we have one season. Let's say we go uh, September to, to May. Over there, they go, like, November to, like, March, which is the winter season, and then they go April to like October. So you're not just signing up for once; you, you do two seasons, and that was our biggest challenge: was trying to get players in for two, because you'd end up developing a player, yeah, for like six months, and then they wouldn't touch a football for another six months, and they come back, and you'd be like, "Oh, what what, what you've been doing?" <laughs> 
But they can strike a park. Yeah. <laughs> We've just been playing hockey. We're going around the mushrooms. Yeah. But do you know what? On a multi-sport, on a multi-sport um, level, you're like, do you know what? Brilliant. You're doing different sports. Fantastic. That's so good for your development. But it wasn't like a donor sport. So I think that works well when you've got like a donor sport that contributes to what you do now. So for example, if you've got a boy in the academy and on weekends he plays tennis with his mum and dad, brilliant. He's getting, you know, that that left and right side jockeying and he did different movements, hand-eye coordination that he wouldn't get with football. But then not touching a football for six months. I don't know if I'm not, if that's too pure for me. Do you... Do you think it did have benefits in terms of the players' athleticism and ABCs? You know, and you know what? The biggest, we had one of our girls' teams, we had two girls, which came out of gymnastics. And they were like quite elite with their gymnastics. And I'll tell you what, they were incredible. They were the most athletic um, players I'd ever seen in my life. And they'd rip the pitch up, and technically they were, they, you know, they were quite good too. Um, obviously, it helped being athletic, but that was the biggest one for me. I couldn't believe the transfer from, you know, being a gymnast to actual now like a football. Like, it, it was incredible how good they were. So, is that something that kind of uh, informed your thinking moving forward regarding multi-sport and exposure to other sports and actually how much of a difference that can make to uh, players, particularly those who early, early specialise? Yeah, the, the, the challenge is you've got... Um, they train with academies so often and then you've got maybe two nights off a week and then you try and tell the mum and dad to go take your son or your daughter to go do gymnastics as well. So what what night do they get to be a family? Yeah, uh, and I know I know some clubs do it within their, their actual training as well. We used to do a little bit. We still do a bit of it, to be honest. Um, but it's hard, you know. You, you haven't got a professional handball player in a professional handball environment teaching them that. Yeah, but I, I think. Obviously, I, I actually sat in a in a meeting with Peter Schmeichel, and he mentioned his upbringing with handball and said how you know, his unique saves in, in a football context came from his experiences and stuff playing that. Um, and I think that it's, it's going to be an ongoing battle in terms of how much multi-sport you get into play, where you get transferable skills and how much you get into specialise kind of in, in football and, and learning skills there. Um, I think it's something that... We'll you know, what I, I, did, I did read in multi-sport a lot of it as well. Is, you know, when you get injured and you have to go back through rehabilitation, People who've come through a multi-sport journey, they can rehab quicker and probably easier because they're being asked to do things which aren't always football movements and they, they're more used to them and they, they can they can facilitate them quicker. Don't quote me on the science. I'm sure there's some scientists out there saying, yes, you're right, here's the article. I couldn't tell you the article, but it is something that I have read about. No, I think it makes sense in terms of just using muscle groups you're not used to. Like, you know, footballers yeah. are obviously known for having tight hamstrings, no glute yeah, activation, exactly. all that type of stuff. So all of a sudden, you're strengthening those hamstrings and lengthening them and you're doing glute work to incorporate their use better. I think that that, that does make sense, obviously. Um, 
obviously that, that you came back and came back to Coventry, which brings us up to modern day. So we've kind of gone full loop. So I guess the last question for me, um, which might be a challenging one from, from what you said earlier on, is who's the best uh, player or coach that you've worked with and why? Hmm. Oh, best player. Um, it's it's going to go against all coaching. The best player, he came in at under 13. And I don't, I don't know how he'd gone through without getting taken anywhere else. But what he what he can do with the football is just magic. Like, he lights up the pitch. Um, he's everything that you want in a footballer. And he's, he's so street. The things he does, he hasn't been taught. I think it's about, you know, the environment and the environment that, that helped make him, let him be him. But no one, no one taught him to, to drop his shoulder five times and off-balance a defender and not make him. I've never seen a session work on that. But he can do it. Um, I'm not going to say his name, but he, he was incredible. He's, he is incredible. Um, so, yeah, you know, when you work with players like that, it's just an absolute delight and a joy. I've not had any player yet make a first-team debut. But I've been working in academy football a while now. And some of the ones I had when they were younger, they're getting older. So I'm, I'm so excited to see one of them make a debut. I've not had it yet, but I'm waiting for it. I cannot wait. Um, and then coaches. I've worked with so many good coaches. Hard, hard for me to pick. I probably, what do you want me to name? If you're happy to, I don't mean to get you in trouble though. So if, <laughs> if you want to say right, my old, my old academy manager, um, he's now West Brom, Rich, Rich Stevens. Um, he, he, what he knew about football, like if he didn't know know it, wasn't worth knowing. He's just a proper football guy. Um, and you, you, you could be honest with him, and he he he, he talked to you about the game, and he'd worked he worked at a lot of levels. Obviously, he helped produce James Madison. He he he's got like that pure football, you know, like a purest football. You know what football should be played like, and he's got high standards. And the way the way that he could build relationships with players and parents, um, I think subconsciously I've taken a lot from him without knowing it. Yeah, he, he he was really, really important for my learning. He's a good guy. Perfect. Sounds like as good a, good a choice as any. So, Joel, listen, I really appreciate your time on this uh, Tuesday morning. Obviously, stay safe and uh, hopefully we'll be able to play a fixture soon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you uh, for having me. And uh, yeah, enjoy the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, bye. Thanks for listening to the Sports Initiative podcast with me, Michael Wright. Please remember to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at the Sports Initiative podcast and share this podcast with friends and family. I'll see you next week.